Well, good morning. So here I'm trying to put together a simple practice or we're trying to find a Cole's Notes, a Cliff Notes to Buddhism. It gets difficult because people get lost in, in the words and arguing the definitions instead of the, the principles, right? If we're supposed to implement this teaching to liberate ourselves, then why are we so mired in, in this Saha world, as they say, arguing over, you know, what enlightenment is or isn't, what emptiness is or isn't? So I've gone back to the source, and here I am reading the, pardon my pronunciation here, the Dhamma Chakapavatana, or Watana Sutta. Uh, setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion. So the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I started by researching. And here's the story that I'm trying to tell uh, as part of my attempt to simplify the teaching, simplify the practice, and, and help um, really share this teaching, this knowledge, this practice, this, this liberation, this, um, this sucker in, in the practice. So... I'll just read, and then uh, it's actually the opening sentence, um, and then I'll mention what I'm talking about here. So, this is not his first teaching, even though it's considered his first. This is his first teaching, um, I guess, officially as a group, and it says, I have heard that on one occasion, the Blessed One, the Blessed One, was staying at Varanasi in the game refuge at Isapatana. There he addressed a group of five monks. And where that story comes from is he toured India with these aesthetic monks, uh, medicant monks, so they begged for their meals, but they lived on as little as possible, right? Aesthetic, meaning um, uh, forego everything and, and, and live on the very bare minimum. And as we go on in this discussion, you'll see why I mentioned that, because he embraced the middle way, even in his first group teaching. But his first teaching was when he spoke to a gentleman and told him of these truths and this, um, this path that he followed himself and gained liberation. The first person introduced to this said, hmm, well, that sounds pretty good, but they were unsure, very middle way, unsure, and they said, let me take this on board and I'll give it a try. Okay, so let me go on to the actual opening of what the Buddha said. And I love it because it is at the heart of the entire teachings. It, it is the teachings. That's it. It's not so complicated. We don't need dozens of people interpreting this for us when it's as simple as this. So let me proceed. There are two. Uh, there are these two extremes that are not to be indulged in by one who has gone forth, right? So again, this relates to the Tathagata, right? The thus come one, when it says the, the, when you have gone forth, we're talking about someone who has decided to walk the path or embrace this teachings, this truth, this philosophy, whatever you want to call it. Don't get caught up in the words. Remember, philosophy just means love of wisdom, okay? And it fits here, right? Because that is our goal. 
is to gain wisdom. So again, as he says, there are these two extremes that are not to be indulged in by one who has gone forth. Which two? That which is devoted to sensual pleasure. Now here we go. Here's the first thing people get caught up on. I hate when they change it to sexual misconduct because I say it all the time. It's sensual pleasure. It's the idea of, of indulging your senses, not strictly your sex parts. So it says, that which is devoted to sensual pleasure with reference to sensual objects. And it gives examples. Base, vulgar, common, ignoble, unprofitable. Right? That's not only what it causes, but that's what those um, desires. Again, we're teaching this. Right? He's teaching that the root of our dissatisfaction with life uh, is um, not just desire, as so many misunderstand, you want to desire liberation. You want to desire uh, to reduce the suffering of others. That's fine. It's these sensual-based desires, the ego-based desires that are base, are vulgar, are common, are ignoble and unprofitable. They are both themselves, these qualities, and result in the same. And it goes on and says, and that which is devoted to self-affliction gives uh, examples. And again, I've already mentioned this, right? Self-affliction meaning um, self-indulgence or just indulging the ego. Gives examples of painful, ignoble, and unprofitable. Once again, this idea of the, the, the three marks of existence isn't about what we commonly translated as impermanence, non-self, and suffering. It's actually all tied together in that anicca, what we commonly translate as uh, non-self, sorry, <laughs> impermanence, getting ahead of myself here. Anicca, as we commonly consider um, impermanence, is in fact what we're talking about here. It's actually that any of these um, sensual pleasures, any of these uh, self-afflictions, anything that is rooted, based or um, flows from the ego, self-affliction, or sensual pleasure. Again, not sexual pleasure, but sensual in the sense that any of your senses, right? They end up being painful, ignoble, unprofitable. They are base, vulgar, common, ignoble, and unprofitable. And that's the result of these desires, these wishes, these actions, these drives. So the paragraph goes on and says, avoiding both of these extremes, the middle way realized by the Tathagata. Okay, right? Here we go. A lot of us think the middle way, or Madhyamaka, is a doctrine that came later and often ascribed to the Mahayanists. But as you can see, he taught this very early on. So there again is a misunderstanding, right? He was teaching the middle way in his very first lesson to a group. Okay, so again, he says, avoiding both of these extremes. And again, he wants you to remember, extreme is not the way. He just come off of uh, nearly dying from extreme asceticism. So he asks you to avoid both of these extremes, which are tying up all of the extremes. He goes on to say, the middle way realized by the Tathagata, thus come one, producing vision 
producing knowledge, right? So that is what we call, the Tibetans like to translate, uh, clear light vision for that satori, enlightenment, samadhi, that, that, that seeing past our delusions, past our, our um, uh, what do they call it, the conventional reality, seeing past that to the true nature of ourselves. That's what they say, the Tathagata Garbha. Uh, your storehouse of Buddha nature, your unborn mind, your, your, your intrinsic Buddha nature. Right? So the middle way is realized by avoiding extremes. It produces vision, clear light vision, and understanding. Right? Insight, vipassana, produces knowledge. Uh, wisdom, understanding, right? Exactly what the goal is. Again, an understanding, an insight, which leads to calm, your samatha, right? Again, these are the outcomes. This is why we use them in the practice. You use calm and insight to help direct this. But again, he's giving a teaching, right? So he says, using the middle way and avoiding extremes, Tathagata tells us you can produce vision and knowledge. You can see insight, uh, or you can achieve insight into the true nature of reality and your, your, your Buddha nature. Again, the wisdom and the vision. This leads to calm, right? Uh, the cessation of ego, well, it's not truly a cessation, but reducing, reduction of its screaming monkey, uh, you know, mind um, does lead to calm, right? Or even simply the knowledge in these. And that's where I see the impermanence, right? Anicca um, as liberating, right? So knowing that our suffering is rooted in our ego desires, and that they themselves, anything that you try to attach to or strive for that is attached to your ego-based desires is not going to last. That brings great peace, and, and I think it's a very positive thing. It makes you appreciate the good times while they're there and understand the bad times will not last. This is the heart of the teachings for me. So again, he says it leads to calm. It leads to direct knowledge. Again, talking about the fact that no one can give you this knowledge or wisdom. This must be realized yourself, by oneself. And he goes on to say, to self-awakening, exactly what he's trying to talk about, was when you realize not only the nature of self, what they call the Atman in Buddhism, is um, the, uh, the impermanent self. Uh, it gets confusing because in the Hindu canon, the Atman is the permanent self. It's the self given by Krishna. But they're not different, right? Um, in the sense that the, the meanings, again, are the same, okay? So even though the words are different and the meanings are different, they're shared, right? So Atman in Buddhism is the self that doesn't last, and it's Tathagata Garbha is the self or the intrinsic nature that does last. In Hinduism, it's uh, the Atman 
that it doesn't last because Krishna imparts that to every new being that's produced. But at the same time, it is that intrinsic nature that sees into um, uh, the universe and is the true nature of the universe, if you get what I mean there. It's a little confusing because the words are the same, and the, and, but the, the concepts themselves are the same, just with different words being used. So again, as I said, he goes on and says that um, using the middle way and avoiding extremes produces vision and knowledge, which leads to calm and direct knowledge and to self-awakening and to unbinding. So what he's talking about here is calm comes from this practice and this understanding, this realization, this truth. It leads to direct knowledge, again, like I said, in combination with the self-awakening. This is something you yourself must see and understand. And then finally to the unbinding. The unbinding, uh, again, multifold. In this case, it's talking about being bound to our delusions and, you know, this, this uh, conventional reality where there's three different realities. There's the, the ultimate true reality, as I was trying to explain in the Hindu's the ultimate true reality is that Atman is that spark uh, given, a little piece of Krishna given to each being. Um, the Atman in Buddhism is the, the, uh, the impermanent self, but the Tathagata Garbha is this same um, uh, ultimate. Then there's what we want reality to be, and then there's the actual what, you know, and that's what I mean by, and that's what I mean by conventional reality. I mean the one that, not the one that we want, not the one that really is, that we don't see, but the one that we share as essentially like a shared delusion. So that unbinding from that delusion, that confusion. But it's also an unbinding from the wheel. They tend to use this, the turning of the Dharma wheel for the teachings, the chakra. But the wheel also denotes um, our life cycle. And I argue it's, once again, flowing from the, the Vedic tradition where it's very circular. Um, but in this case, the wheel is about, um, again, this conventional reality that we're bound to um, with the birth and death and rebirth cycle. So when we talk in Buddhism, when they talk about unbinding, uh, it commonly does refer to exactly this, Right? Um, so there you go. I mean, that's the heart of uh, the teachings. There's your, um, arguably, that one sentence tells us both uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Three Marks of Existence. So that's 15 minutes already. Um, I'll actually maybe do uh, <laughs> another um, uh, episode on the next uh, paragraph. Uh, but again, as I started... This is the heart of the teachings. You can spend a lifetime on simply these simple truths. That life is inherently dissatisfying. That dissatisfaction directly flows from our own ego-based desires, be it sensual to satisfy our senses. Uh, what we eat, we eat too much. Uh, what we listen to, if you indulge too much in listening to music at the expense of other things. If you enjoy uh, staring at pretty things at the expense of other precepts. Right? 
So that's the idea that they're talking about here, right? So thank you for listening. I hope you guys have a great day. We'll talk again soon.